It's time for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group on Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's news channel with financial advisors Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, and Josh Gregory. Now, here's your host, Casey Hendrickson. Wise Money deserves wise legal counsel. Powered by Ledoux, Curran, and Keene. On the web at lck-law.com. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. You're listening to Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. I'm here with Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, Josh Gregory. I'm Casey Hendrickson. So, uh, Mike, I mean, what are we talking about today, man? Oh, we've got a lot to cover. It's actually going to be a great show. Uh, Looking at the outline here, our best one ever. So, if you are in your car and you're driving and you're about home, just keep going. Just keep driving. You're going to want to listen to the whole thing. Uh, Actually, so every Saturday morning, uh, this is actually a a discipline that I picked up from Kevin. You guys will be tuning into this show, listening for some financial wisdom and so on. But one of my routines is I pull up the Wall Street Journal on Saturday mornings and I dig through to find a couple articles. And recently I found two articles that really touch on the same really meaningful, important, emotional topic. And that is planning for college and dealing with the massive amount of student loan debt that's out there. Yeah, I can't think of any topic or financial goal that probably evokes more uh, financial emotions in most couples, most households than the topic of college planning. And, uh, you know, everyone has an opinion on this. Obviously, we do. But uh, hopefully today we can maybe spark some conversations around the dinner table between spouses or between parents and their kids around this topic of college planning. And uh, Mike, you got me fired up with some articles that uh, that you were just referencing. I think my, my own uh, blood pressure is still pretty high just thinking about this topic of student debt. Yeah, so so catch this. Here, here's a couple of the headlines from the articles. The first one, uh, this, is, this is just recent in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, school loan reckoning, 7 million are in default. So what they're saying there, almost 7 million, 6.9 million uh, student loans are more than 12 months past due. So let's put that in perspective. There's about 40 million students or former students with student loans. So about 17% of all student loans out there haven't had a payment made in the last 365 days. Yep, that's incredible. That's astounding. It also states that, you know, so so typically you don't measure delinquency just on one year. It's are you 30 days past due? And that percentage increases to about 23% of all student loans out there are more than 30 days past due. That's that's just astounding. Before uh, before the show, we were we were talking with a, a banker friend of ours at a local bank in town and said, you know, that's a crippling number. Is that normal? So so this individual works at a local bank of a portfolio of loans that you guys have. How many, you know, what, what percentage are in default? And Kevin, what did he share with us? Yeah, they have a delinquency. They like to keep it uh, below two. And in the bad times, things push north of two. Um, but really, one to 2% is what they would expect. So again, putting that in perspective, a delinquency rate of 17% on this portfolio of loans compared to the private sector that has to actually run a business, an acceptable delinquency rate is somewhere in the 1% to 2% range. Yeah, that's that's incredible. He, he also said if the delinquency rates at his bank exceed 3%, they'd really need to start evaluating their underwriting guidelines, which in non-nerd speak is 
we'd have to reevaluate who we're actually giving loans to. Yet that's not part of the equation at all right now. Right. I mean, if the federal government is, you know, for political reasons and, you know, social uh, agendas that are being pushed, if they say, hey, everyone should be able to get an education, which by itself, that statement is an obvious, well, sure, who, who wouldn't stand behind that? But Absolutely. one of the, you know, unintended consequences of saying everyone should be able to get an education and the way you fund that is by going and getting loans and we're going to make it easy for you to go get loans, then you have an underwriting standard. You know, a a local banker wouldn't be making loans in the same fashion that the federal government has said you have to be able to to get these loans for, for school. So, you know, to be six times what a local bank would say is acceptable, um, I don't know, this this is astounding to me, to be 17% of loans mm-hmm. in default. Yeah, a couple other things mentioned in the article. So the average student loan customer owes more than $28,000. I mean, that is that is just huge. The average student has student loans $28,000. Yeah, and go back to what... Josh said about the increase of student loan debt and the idea that everyone should be able to get an education, so we're going to finance it. And a similar thing happened in the arena of housing, yeah. and there was a there was a major uh, bubble right. that burst. But I I think you know when you talk about bubble, there's a balloon here. Um, student loans have ballooned tenfold since 1999 to about one. Point two trillion, and although Mike, you say that the average student loan balance is twenty eight thousand, the class of two thousand fifteen, they're the winners. They they have more student loan debt than any other class before them. Their average student loan debt is about thirty five thousand dollars. Oh my goodness! Wow. Yeah, and you know, the, the, so the government has they're they're aware of this problem. And as I was doing a little bit more research for the discussion today, there's they're trying to put out some propaganda saying we're aware and we're helping students and, and so on, trying to keep interest rates low and, and, and all of that. But really their solutions so far have been throwing out a couple schemes to eliminate or, or charge off your remaining student debt. If you, if you meet certain criteria, Josh, you want to speak to that a little bit? Well, I assume you're referring to some of these, uh, you know, income-based repayment yep. pl- plans. And, you know, basically if you enroll in one of these programs, um, they'll take a look at your income each year and base your payment um, each month on your income. And they'll stretch the, the payments out. If you make payments on time over a 10-year period of time or a 20, 25, then whatever's left at the end of that period can just be erased theoretically. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but obviously, you know, there's challenges with that and it really creates some disincentives to be focused on growing your income, uh, as a couple. And I I think you were even sharing a story about someone, you know, that maybe was eligible for one of these. Yeah. I I have someone, uh, a friend of mine who, uh, who's, who has a significant amount of student loan and his spouse was working for a nonprofit organization. And there's uh, a rule right now where if you work for a nonprofit organization for 10 years, it started in just a couple of years ago. So 10 years from that time and do income-based repayment. Then after that 10 years, if you're still working for a nonprofit, then that loan will be charged off. Well, 
the nonprofit job that she had was just too challenging emotionally for her. And so she switched into a different career. And now they're, they're left trying to figure out, well, how can we file our taxes separately and restructure our entire financial life to then get on a different um, forgiveness program, which is just making uh, uh, income-based payments for 25 years. I mean, they're going to structure their financial life around this for decades in hopes that some of the $70,000 of debt will get charged off instead of focusing on how they can grow their income and how they can pay aggressively on this and go achieve other financial goals. They're going to re- revolve their entire financial life around this. You know, one of the things too, guys, just looking at some of the numbers here, um, because I think when somebody looks at college and they're like, hey, we're going to go to college, you know, they assume two to four years. That's what they assume. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if they just want an associate's degree, I'm just going to go to college for two years. If they want a bachelor's degree, it'll be four. That does not happen. Right. That does not happen. Uh, when you look at the four-year graduation rate in the United States of America in college, it is 40%. Wow. Yep. 60% of people who go to college will not graduate with a degree in four years or less. When you get to the six-year mark, which is where you're most likely to get your degree now in the United States, so that's two additional years of financing that you probably weren't expecting in student loan debt. When you get to the six-year mark, only 60.5% in public four-year institutions and only 62.5% in private colleges graduate. Wow. You're still at a 40% non-graduation rate at that point. So it takes an extra 10% a year to get there. And I don't think people are planning on that extra loan money. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. yeah, so hearing that you look at the loan uh, potential for student loans and it just increases. I mean, Kevin, let's talk about some of the, some of the damages, some of the side effects here to the individuals or to families by having this much student loan debt. Well, by a student graduating with $35,000 of debt, what that does is it, it they've already signed up for the the big debt that they're going to have. And so most folks aren't able to then set aside enough money to have a down payment. And then they when their debt to income ratio is assessed by a, a mortgage lender, they say, hey, you can't buy a house. Yeah, you probably can't get a house when you want. Yeah. May not be, my, may not be able to buy a car. Mm-hmm. And so when when our economy is driven by consumer spending, we're taking a generation of folks and really um, stunting the, the, their ability to get started in the traditional way that you think about, you know, when I graduated, uh, I didn't have any student debt. I had the GI Bill and uh, was blessed uh, to serve my country and have that taken care of. But Back in 1993, the average student debt for those graduates was about $8,000. So Mm -hmm. it's a a meaningful difference, $8,000 versus $35,000 today. Yeah, so you mentioned might influence your ability to buy your first house, might influence your ability to buy a car, which is needed as well. A couple others, if you're trying to start a business, and we're small business owners, we believe in the small business and what it does for the economy. If you're saddled with a bunch of debt and then say, now I, I need to go to a bank and borrow money to start my business, they're not going to let you. They're not going to let you borrow that. So being an entrepreneur, it impacts that in the economy. And then also could impact your ability to begin saving for your own retirement and your kid's college. I mean, there's a trickle-down effect here that's going to directly impact the economy. All because of a decision when you're 18 years old, yeah. um, you know, that ultimately, and we talk about cash flow with the six areas of financial planning all the time. 
And right out of the get-go, boom, you've taken a huge portion of that cash flow right off of the table. We've got a lot to get to with this, and, and maybe a little politics on what the government should probably do about this will we'll pop up a little bit throughout the other show. Uh, and don't forget, if you have any questions about financial planning, go to wisemoneyradio.com. We have a form on the website. You can go ahead and just you know put your question in there, and we will address it in a future show like we've been doing the past couple of weeks, and we'll do so a little bit later on in the program today. You're listening to Wise Money with Corn Financial Group on News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group on News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Welcome back once again. You're listening to Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group on News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, Josh Gregory from Corhorn Financial Group here. I'm Casey Hendrickson. We're talking about college uh, today. Saving for college, uh, funding your college, trying to make it as less of a, a stressful and financial burden on your life as, as it uh, could be and is right now for many people. So we kind of teased, maybe we need to get into the government aspect of this. Now, there's been some reforms, guys, on shifting some of the burden more to the family as opposed to the government. But should the government and banks continue to make these loans, considering this is having a huge negative impact on our economy and our society in general? Yeah, this is, it's dangerous. Kevin brought up in the first segment here that this could be a bubble. You know, leveraging this much your future income, we know how that story ends. That is dangerous. And so some reforms, Casey, you mentioned, we've got a lot uh, of high schools in the area now that are being more active on having their students that are hungry and willing to apply themselves graduate from high school with an associate. That can help reduce student loan student loans and, and so on. But, um, but this is headed towards a, a, a bad ending. Yeah, one of the one of the unintended consequences that we didn't get to in the first segment is if I'm 18 and someday we'll do a show on an 18 year old's ability to assess risk. But let's not even go there. If I'm 18 and I borrow over four years, I borrow thirty five thousand dollars to pay for my college. Those four years I might be working during school. I might be working during the summers, but I'm probably paying little to no federal taxes and maybe a little bit of state taxes. But when I graduate and I have a reasonable income, I'm gonna to have to pay those loans back with after-tax dollars. So I'm gonna make money, pay taxes on that money, what I have left over, I'm gonna pay back my loans. And it, it just makes it that much harder to get these loans paid off. Well, that's one of the reasons why I think parents need to play a leadership role with their kids when they're making decisions about where they're going to school because, you know, all these numbers about huge student loans when you graduate, it's not a big issue if you've got this amazing career ahead of you that's going to pay it off with ease, right? But the problem is there are too many college degrees that are just kind of fun, something to do, you know, or it's a degree that just barely gets your foot in the door in a career that needs graduate school or some other advanced training that goes above and beyond it, and the undergraduate degree that you borrowed all that 35000 for isn't really repaying. It is a bad investment, quite frankly. And to, to me, that's where the politics comes into play. When you have easy money, it creates a moral hazard that leads to bad investments. And I would define easy money as either really low interest rates or just really low underwriting standards. But it, it drives people, it, Kevin, you mentioned earlier uh, the housing bubble, how that was all driven by easy money in the form of low interest rates and 
and relaxed uh, underwriting standards, but it, it drove people to buy a house they couldn't afford. It drove businesses to make investments or launch products that were maybe half-baked ideas just because you don't, if you're borrowing at rock bottom interest rates, you don't have to go earn a huge rate of return on your money to justify the borrowing. You know, yeah, I'll go borrow 2% for this project that might generate 6%. But that 6% idea is just a bad idea that you never would have done in a time when money was more difficult to get your hands on. And the same thing we're seeing in in education. If it wasn't so easy to go get that loan, you might have thought twice about the degree you're choosing or the school you're going to or how you're going to fund it uh, along the way. One of the things that I've seen too as somebody who is in the IT field is that a lot of people go to a four-year university for an IT degree. Yeah. And when you get into IT, they immediately throw those applications out. They don't want people who went to college because you don't learn anything in college Mm -hmm. about IT. They want you to either go to a technical school get the certifications and things like that on your own, improve aptitude in one-third the time at like one-tenth the cost, <laughs> and then you can go into the field. Because they're finding out that people go to a four-year university, they're coming out, and they maybe have six months of experience actually working on a piece of equipment, and they don't know what they're doing. They don't have any certifications. Yeah. Right. right. So this is a big deal, and it's an emotional deal because you're talking. we're talking about our kids. We're talking about the future of this nation. We're talking about, um, you know, the, the, the standard of living here in the United States, and... Let's turn this to the positive. So we've talked about the problem and and the issues, but let's face it. Most of the people that come through our doorway and have big financial goals, one of those goals is to plan for college or or help their kids get through school and and pay for it. So let's talk a little bit about the flip side of this, the hope side of how do you help someone plan for college and, and helping their kids financially pay for school? Well, a leader's job is to define reality and to plan for college. It's going to take some great leadership. Some folks are do-it-yourselfers and they create their own plans. Some folks prefer to work with a professional and to have that second opinion, that that uh, oversight, that guidance, that coaching. And so if you are, are looking for that, then I, I'd say go approach your financial planner and ask them to help you create a plan and determine what exactly you're trying to accomplish. And so when you look at that, uh, Josh, the the four steps of reaching any goal there. Well, the first step, I mean, is define the goal, obviously. And that actually, for a lot of couples, that's one of the most difficult things to accomplish because they come to the table with different experiences themselves. You know, I I can't tell you how many spouses will say, well, you know, my kid isn't going to pay a dime because my parents, you know, didn't help me with my schools and I'm not going to do that to them. Right. And maybe their spouse is sitting there saying, well, my parents didn't help me either. And it was good for me. And I'm not going to, you know, just give my kids a free ride to school and have them blow it or not appreciate it or not make it a good investment. So Getting on the same page and defining what the goal is, is incredibly important. And it's also very difficult. It's one of the reasons to get an outside uh, party or an an advisor involved in the process. But also being honest about where that goal fits amongst all your other goals. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, how many people sit in our offices and they say, hey, man, I've got to get cranking on college here because it's only five years away and haven't really been saving for it. And just the the closeness in proximity that that goal is on the timeline of their life, it suddenly elevates it to a higher level of importance than maybe it naturally would have been. Those same people may have said, 
well, getting our emergency fund in place was most important or saving for retirement was most important. But just the fact that college comes along sooner than some of these other goals, all of a sudden it gets elevated uh, to to a status and an attention level that maybe doesn't fit for that family. Yeah. So I so, think one of the things that we want to do, because we're just up on a commercial break, sorry, Mike, but um, one of the things we're going to talk about is, you know, okay, since this is coming early, just like what Josh is saying, it's coming before retirement and all those other things, um, how soon should you actually start saving? How many times have we heard about parents who, you know, baby's still in the womb, I'm going to open a bank account tomorrow, and 18 years later, they still don't have that bank account, right? And it's it's uh, it's go time. So <laughs> we'll talk about when you should start saving for college, some of the other things. And, you know, um, I, I think something, too, guys, just leading into the commercial break, how many times have we said, you know, okay, when should you seek out the advice of a financial planner? And you go, well, now. That might involve a 17- or 18-year-old kid who's getting ready to go into college and needs a third party. Maybe their parents are pushing them to go to college and their parents didn't go through college. They don't have any experience in this. But maybe they have somebody that can go, look, I've been through this. You don't want to go get a degree in Kanye West versus the world as an actual class <laughs> at a higher educational facility in the United States of America. Maybe you don't want to go do that. Uh, maybe you want to pursue this or that and then pursue your passion later. So we'll, we'll get into all of that in just a couple of minutes. Don't forget, if you have any financial planning questions, whether it's related to college or not, you can go to wisemoneyradio.com and you can submit your questions right there on the website. And as soon as we're, we're kind of done talking about this and going over the 529 plans and everything else on how to get you set for college for your kids, we'll start answering some of those questions that have been submitted through that website here on this program. Once again, you're listening to Wise Money Radio with Corn Financial Group right here on News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group on News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Welcome back. Once again, you're listening to Wise Money Radio with Corhorn Financial Group. Again, I got Kevin, I got Mike, I got Josh, I'm Casey, and we've been talking about how to prepare yourself for funding college for your kids. And uh, you, the 17, 18-year-olds, might be in the car right now. You should be paying attention as well. (laughs) And we're going to answer some questions from listeners that they submitted on wisemoneyradio.com in just a couple of minutes. But really, we wanted to, to go into when should you start saving for college? Because a lot of us parents out there the moment we found out we're going to have a child, I'm going to open a bank account, money's going to go in it every single week, every single paycheck, whatever, and it doesn't always happen or it does and an emergency happens, you have to pull that money out. So when should people really seriously start saving for college? Yeah, that you actually asked a lot of questions there just in that one question. The the where or excuse me, when is now? Is as soon as possible. You get that urge. I met with some folks just yesterday who are having their third child due in October. We open an account. They had the urge, hey, we want to start setting money aside for baby number three. Yep, let's open the account and get and get that started. The sooner the better. The only caveat I would add to that though is if education for your kids is goal number four on your list of most important objectives then don't start saving for number four until you know you have a game plan in place for number one, two, and three. You know, again, don't let number four jump to the top of the the list just because, uh, you know, the colleges are starting to recruit or, uh, you know, the the timeline is ticking here against you. So the other question that you asked and and when is kind of underneath that is, well, where? Yeah. And how? Where? How? Okay. So there's a few different vehicles. Uh, our favorite is actually different than what Dave Ramsey recommends. Every time I hear him talk about what he recommends, I completely disagree and kind of want to argue with him right there on the spot. Our favorite is the 529 plan. Kevin, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. You, If you live in Indiana, you should be intimately 
aware of the 529 plan and the benefits of the 529 plan. If you ever want to educate yourself, educate a child, a grandchild, a niece, nephew, anyone connected to you, you want to be aware. And that's because every year you can put $5,000 in the plan and get a 20% credit on your taxes for that year. On your state taxes. On your state taxes. So I put in $5,000. I get a $1,000 credit. That's a huge, huge deal. And I can put in money this year and use it this year. Indiana's not the best at a lot of things, but they do have the best 529 plan out there. If you live in Michigan, you don't have the best program. You've got a good program, though. Unlike Indiana, where you've got a 20% tax credit, uh, in Michigan, it's a 5% deduction. So you can put up to $10,000 in Michigan's 529 and get a 5% deduction. So it helps you a little. It's not quite as good as Indiana's, but still reason enough to use it, to use the 529 plan. The 529 works a lot like a Roth, that when you put the money in, uh, yeah, you get a couple tax incentives, but it's for the most part after tax money that grows depending on how the investments perform. And when you use the money for college, that growth comes out tax free. So if you're, if, if you take that motivation and you start saving for your kid's college, I would take a hard look at the 529 plan as the first place to put. How much risk is there in a 529 plan? So if somebody out there is going, okay, I hear growth, I hear investment. Okay. Alarms are going off. I put $10,000 into this thing uh, a year and then boom, stock market does what it did a couple of weeks ago. And next thing you know, I've lost my kid's college fund. Is there a risk of that happening or, or what? The 529 plan is, it's similar to your 401k where you're setting dollars aside for retirement in that case, but you have a whole slew of investment options to choose from, some of which are real conservative and others that are more long-term growth oriented. So, you know, younger folks who are just getting started when their child is young, uh, they may use some investment options inside the 529 plan that are more growth oriented, more long-term in their nature. But quite frankly, I mean, there's there's some people who are getting started saving for college right on the eve of college. So to put a bunch of money at risk, uh, you know, of, of some sort of market collapse right as their, their kid is enrolling... Um, you know, that that would be foolishness. So there are options inside these 529 plans to be safe with the money. Yeah. And the Indiana 529 plan incentive, the $1,000 credit came about, I believe in 2007. Yep. And so I had clients in 2008, early 2008, that put $5,000 in the plan. They learned about it and they said, this is great. Someday I'm going to have this child or grandchild that is going to uh, want to do something. And uh, by 2009, that $5,000 was $3,500. And so they looked at that and they said, oh, the 529 plan is just a bad deal. And it's not that the 529 plan was a bad deal. It's that the stock market had dropped so severely. And they said, well, my investments have declined so severely. What should I do? And my answer was put another $5,000 in. And that's counterintuitive, but that for the folks that did that, the results that they've gotten are fabulous. And buy low, sell high. You always have to remind people of that. So one quick question, because I'm in radio. Uh, I know you guys are kind of new to the game and you're primarily outside of radio, but this is my primary gig. It's a very transient gig. Let's say I have a 529 plan for my daughter and then I move. What happens to it? Yeah, so each state has their own 529 plan, and it's a, we're gonna we're not gonna hit politics today, but it partly clashes with politics. Uh, so you don't have to do anything. Say you move to a different state, you leave that 529 plan there. There's really no harm, no foul to leave it there. If you move 
to Indiana, uh, you there's incentives to begin contributing to Indiana's plan and leave your you know Nevada plan where it was. Um, but yeah, there's there's no penalty, no harm, no foul to have a 529 from a different state. And you can always go and get it, right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sure money. All right. So anything else that we wanted to cover before we started taking questions, guys? I think we always want to have some action items. So Josh, what would you tell listeners from today's discussion, the good and the bad, what would you urge them to do? I think I would begin the conversation, no matter where you are with your kids' education, they may be just entering high school or on their way out, but to begin defining what role are you going to play in helping the kids with their education. And the most important thing is to communicate that to your child as soon as possible. You know, I, my parents are not perfect, but they've done a lot of things right as I look back and now that I am a parent myself. But one of the things I'm most grateful for is that they told me early on, here's what our role will be in helping with your college education. And it it helped define for me how much responsibility I was going to have in uh, paying for my own college. And it it allowed me to start planning earlier. You know, it it forced me to begin thinking like an adult sooner than I may have otherwise needed to. And, uh, you know, I, I would wish that upon any child right now that their parents would define for them the situation and give them every incentive to get involved. Make sure they have skin in the game. All right, guys. So here we have a couple of questions from the listeners. And again, you can submit your questions by going to wisemoneyradio.com. You fill out the form there and we will answer those questions just like we're getting ready to do now on a future program. So we've got Steve. Steve's 37 years old, guys. He's from Elkhart. It says, my wife and I have been renting for a couple of years and want to buy a house. I tried to get pre-approved for a mortgage, but my credit score was too low. Do you have any suggestions for how to get a quick jump in my credit score? You know, I I don't know of any real quick fixes. Um, Unfortunately, the the best way to improve your credit score is just to be faithful about making your payments on time over a long period of time. I do know that there are quick and easy ways to screw up your credit, though. Um, (laughs) We can do a whole show about that. Exactly. Missing (laughs) payments and so on. But a lot of people don't realize that... um, if if you have a fistful of credit cards and you have nearly maxed each one out, that actually has a negative uh, you know effect upon your score. You'd be better off uh, having two credit cards that are about halfway full than to have one that is all the way full. Actually, you know, it goes into their algorithm for scoring. Also, if you have too many recently opened cards, that also can have a, a negative um, impact on your on your score. But so, so in that case, you know, sometimes when we're trying to help people uh, just focus in on, on getting approved for a loan, checking to make sure that they're not going back and closing their oldest credit cards and just leaving the new ones because then they don't have as much credit history. Um, That can have an adverse effect. But at the end of the day, it all boils down to um, are you being diligent and making your payments on time? And that's just a slow road to, to recovery. With one exception, there are folks that I've seen who have had inaccurate information on their credit score or credit report. Good point. So, you know, if if you check out the free annual credit report that everyone's allowed to have, check it for accuracy, get stuff fixed because you may have something dragging your score down. You, you have, Pretty much you've got to be at a 680 or above to qualify for most mortgages. Um, so, you know, if you've got something pulling you down, you need to identify it quickly. Yeah. And I would encourage you, Steve, to think your credit score 
is yours. You own it. You're in charge. You're the boss. You need to make sure that your credit score gets where it needs to be. There's nothing wrong with having a bad credit score. There's something wrong with leaving it there. Because what that does, to Josh's point, it affects what kind of mortgage rates I can get or whether I can even get a mortgage. But it also affects what you pay for car insurance and on down the line. So there's a, a recent survey from the National Foundation for Credit Counseling that indicates more people would be embarrassed to admit their credit score, 30%, than their weight. And so <laughs> you, you think about this and you think, well, this, th- it's something that not everyone wants to talk about. And so you say, well, well, then what's my action steps? What should Steve do right now? Steve should go and get a copy of his credit report. And you can do that uh, at annualcreditreport.com. And there are three major credit recording, uh, reporting bureaus that must give you a free copy per year. So if you do that about once every four months, you get another copy of your credit score. You can, um, your credit report actually, mm-hmm. uh, that's one of the ways to take charge, see what's on there, see if there's another person out there named Casey Hendrickson that's opening up credit in your name or you know, go on down the line. There's all kinds of interesting things that can happen and you end up getting punished financially for those things and you're not even aware of them. And Credit Karma, uh, there's a couple of the free credit score, which is different than your report. Mm-hmm. Um, credit Karma doesn't require a credit card or automatically enroll you in anything. Uh, I've used it before and it's, you know, it's reasonably accurate too. Yeah. So it, there, there's tools out there for you to use. But one thing I'd like to add on there, guys, is plan ahead because just because there's an inaccuracy on there doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easily you know, <laughs> exactly. taken off. Yeah. Uh, th- my, my wife had one. This actually w- was hurting our chances of buying a house when we bought previously. She had a mortgage from when she was like 12. Huh. because she's a junior. So her mom's mortgage went on her credit report oh, by yeah. accident. And yeah. she's like, no, I was 12. Here's my birth certificate. And they left it. And I said, no, sorry, you didn't provide sufficient information that this is not yours, <laughs> even <laughs> no. though she could not have a mortgage at 12 years old. So, right. uh, And it can be a long struggle to get things off. So you want to plan ahead if you got to get those inaccuracies out of there. Uh, all right, so we got more questions coming up here on Wise Money with Corn Financial Group. We'll get to those questions in just a couple of minutes. I want to remind everybody to go to wisemoneyradio.com, submit your questions, uh, anything financially planning, financial planning related, and we'd be happy to answer those coming up on any future program. we got more coming up on Wise Money right here on Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group on News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Wise Money deserves wise legal counsel. Powered by Ledoux, Curran, and Keene. On the web at lck-law.com. Welcome back. Once again, thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. And again, you can find them online at corhorn.com. But the website for the radio show, Wise Money Radio. Dot com, And you can submit your financial planning questions on that website so we can answer them, just like we're taking listener questions right now. And uh, so, guys, we're, we're, we left off with Steve, who was you know, talking about getting his credit score up. We have Jim from Elkhart, who's 64 years old. I'm looking to retire in the next year or two and feel very nervous about the stock market. I think he's feeding off of what just happened with the stock market recently. Uh, do you think that I should get out of the market so I don't risk too much of my retirement? So this is a guy who's pretty close to retirement. We talk about assessing that risk and mm-hmm. and everything when you get close to the end there. This is a common concern. So Jim, thanks for the question. And I know a lot of listeners are, are curious about the same thing. And the short answers, the short answers, no. Part of Part of that stems from your overall investment strategy should should be anchored with diversification. So you shouldn't have all of your money in the stock market at age 64 and just about to retire anyway. You should have some dollars outside of the stock market, either in short-term low-risk 
investments or lower risk bond investments. So, so those dollars have done just fine during during this recent volatility. And so, yeah, in order for your money to last your entire retirement, you've got to be taking some risk. You've got to earn a return on your dollars in order to make your retirement dreams possible. To bail out of the stock market right now with all of your dollars really puts you in a position where you're not earning any return and it will inevitably mean your dollars will not last through retirement. And that's where when you look at your financial plan, the dollars that you're not going to need to touch for the next 10 years probably need to stay at risk. And when you say stay at risk, that's in the stock market and that's subject to volatility and it's going to go up and down. But the money that you need in the first 10 years, you have a great plan for how to secure those dollars. That's exactly right. Those dollars should not be in the market right now. Makes sense. Shannon, who's 24 years old, so she's uh, she's looking at this fairly young age. I was listening to your show when you explained the six areas of financial planning and the two topics that I haven't given much thought to are estate planning and life insurance. I'm not married. I don't have any kids. Do I really need to work out these these details yet or can I wait until I'm older? That's actually an interesting question because I've actually begun advising more young people to pay attention to their own estate planning, their own life insurance, that kind of thing. Um, a scenario that I've, I've seen come up, consider this, what if uh, you send a child off to college, they're in a different state, they have a car accident, they have some sort of an illness, an injury or something that occurs, you kind of fly into town to help take care of things for them and you start bumping into HIPAA laws and just the fact that this child is really an adult and you can't sign for them like you used to be able to when they were 15 years old, you're being stymied everywhere you go. And the, the way you get around this is if your child, that student off to college, or, or even someone who's a young professional, they've graduated from college, but they're living in another community on their own, they need to have their own power of attorney in place and a healthcare representative appointed these are basically documents that give someone else permission to carry out uh, financial matters for you or to interact with the doctors to make decisions for your health if you're not able to. And uh, it, it avoids them having to go to court and get some sort of conservatorship or guardianship for you, which is a crazy, expensive, and, and long Complicated process. process. Yeah, totally unnecessary as well. Yeah. So... To, to me, I, you know, I, I've gotten more intentional about bringing this up with younger people who, you know, left to their own devices, they, they may think of themselves as young and invincible. Nothing bad is going to happen to me. But unfortunately, I've just seen more cases where that's not the, the situation. And the estate plan is important, but also the life insurance question. Mm-hmm. And when you look at that as a youngster, you say, well, when's the best time to get life insurance. And a lot of times you say, well, for life insurance, I want to assess what are my needs? Are my needs for survivor income to fund unfunded goals, estate liquidity, things like that. And the best time to get life insurance is right before your health changes. (laughs) So if you're able to predict a change in your health, then, then you'd know when to get it. But the way things stand right now, term insurance, especially if you're healthy, is so incredibly cheap that I wouldn't hesitate to tell Shannon, hey, Shannon, go out and get a, a decent-sized term insurance policy that's not going to be very expensive at all. And um, that kind of locks in your health. Yeah. And if you get one that's convertible and it has a, a few other options, bells and whistles on it, 
um, that can be a really good thing to consider. Well, that hits close to home for me. You know, we bought life insurance, my, my wife and I, when we were in our mid-20s. And, you know, here we are 10 years later in our mid-30s and she's had cancer twice. Yeah. You know, she can't go get new life insurance now. So if you wait until you think the need is fully there, uh, the risk is that the game changes on you with your own health or your own financial situation and you just can't get that insurance that you needed uh, years ago. And so. Shannon, so I'm, I'm taking on Dave Ramsey again. So, Shannon, you're 24, so if you're buying a term policy, you need a 30-year term policy. Absolutely. Dave Ramsey always says, oh, you, how need, long? you yeah. need a 20-year. No, stretch it out for 30 years uh, as, as a close friend of Josh and his family to watch them go through that. Yeah, you're, you're, you're going to want to make sure you've got a long policy that's also convertible. Right, and you lock in your health. Because the other thing that happens, you might not have something as drastic as cancer, but over time you might become too short for your weight. And there are other types of of situations there that you want to just make sure that you're... I'll tell you my credit score, but not my weight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, my wife, when she had our our daughter, she lost like two to three inches of height. I mean, and she didn't bounce back. And sometimes that happens with women too. So that could affect everything. You never know. You get compacted a little bit. Who knows? (laughs) Just don't ever mention it, Katie. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Any closing thoughts before we get out of here? Yeah, you know, so the the, the college debate uh, is a meaningful debate. It is going to weave itself into the future of the United States and our economy and all of that. So I'm going to go back to what Josh and Kevin said earlier. Be a leader in that area. And you can't change the entire uh, country's stance on it, but you can influence your family. And so be a leader there. Step up. Start that conversation with your spouse. Start that conversation with your kids about how to plan for college. And if you've got student loans, your kids already have some student loans, sit down with a financial planner. Come up with a plan to get those loans paid off and move on to the next most important priority in your financial life. And maybe don't be afraid to ask for help. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of parents that are pushing their kids to go to college because their kids will be the first ones in the family to go. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, you're going to have some questions along the way because you haven't been through the process. Plus, the process has changed so many times since you would have gone through it. Just don't be afraid to go ask for some help because you never know what might actually be out there for you. Once again, I want to remind everybody, if you have a question related to financial planning, go to wisemoneyradio.com. You can also get podcasts of the show there. And, uh, of course, uh, we would answer those questions in future shows. And sometimes we don't get to all of them, but we got to a lot of them today. And we're able to help some people, and we're happy about that. So, again, wisemoneyradio.com, corehorn.com if you're looking for financial planning. Guys, thank you very much for Kevin, for Mike, and for Josh. I am Casey Hendrickson. Thank you for listening to Wise Money with Corehorn Financial Group on News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Securities are offered through Securities America, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Financial advisors offer advisory services through KFG Wealth Management, LLC, doing business as Corhorn Financial Group. KFG Wealth Management, LLC, Corhorn Financial Group, KFG Insurance Agency, and KFG Tax and Business Services are separate entities from Securities America, Inc. Tax services provided by KFG Tax and Business Services and insurance services provided by KFG Insurance Agency. Listen again next week to Wise Money on News Talk 95.3 Michiana's News Channel.